welcome to the podcast of Imago Day Community Eastside Gathering. Join us in this Sunday service as we look to the scriptures, seeking to be transformed into the image of Christ. Well, we are in a new series that starts this morning. And uh, excited about it. It's a uh, it's really kind of hammering home uh, what it means to be the people of God. What does it mean to live in community? And most importantly, what does it mean to be the people of God? And what does it mean to live in community as, as we think through it in the context of, of engaging our culture? And so we're going to be walking through this. I'll be preaching, Hakeem. And some of our other preaching team will be a part of this whole series, and I'm excited about it. And it's called Belong. So what does it mean to be the people of God? What does it mean to belong? And how do we engage the culture? So we're going to start in Daniel chapter 1 this morning. And uh, before I go into it, we're going to pray. Jesus, we thank you this morning that we... But you didn't just die for us, you died for community. You died for people. You died for new Israel. You died for the church, the ecclesia, um, that a people would live subversively and be brought together. And it would be so baffling that it would serve as a witness to the world around it. I pray that you would help me communicate and kickstart this series today to help us understand how you join us and how we engage the culture and society that we live in today because we truly live in our own cultural moment. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. There was a, uh, there's a movie called uh, The End of All Wars. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It was a movie in 2001. It's called The End of All Wars, and there's a scene in the movie where these three American soldiers are in prison, they're POWs, and they're, they're, they're thinking about getting out of, you know, getting out of the country that they were uh, taken captive in. And so they're in prison, and they're just kind of dreaming to each other, having this conversation about each other about when they get out, what's the first thing they're going to do? And the first soldier says, when I get out, the first thing I'm going to do is go home, see my sweetheart, and get married. The second soldier said, well, when I get home, the first thing I'm going to do is enroll into a university, complete four years of college, and become a teacher, an educator. And the third was the commander. And the commander said, the first thing I'm going to do when I get home is start preparing for another war. And as I think about what does it mean to be the people of God and engaging our society, oftentimes, sadly, in Christendom, we look at the culture, and for us, it's just another war. It's another battle, right? And we oftentimes live in these sort of cultural wars between how do I live out my faith and be a Jesus person, and how do I engage the culture? And we've not done it well to a certain degree. But what we want to walk through in this series is, is 
to be the people of God, to belong to the people of God, especially in our cultural moment today, is to live to a certain degree in exile, to be foreigners and strangers and aliens in this world, to have one foot in this world and yet one foot in the kingdom of God and not make an idol out of this world, an idol out of our own cultural moment, but to understand that we are truly citizens of a different kingdom. And the reason this is, is important is because there's this growing conviction that the culture has shifted. And it's made it increasingly difficult to identify what it means to be the people of God, to live in exile, to be strangers and aliens in this culture. If you're anything like me, I, don't, I struggle with the word evangelical, right? And some would even say, is there even such thing as a black evangelical? Right? Because what we associate, what it means to be evangelical today is, is are you a white conservative Republican? Right? That's what evangelical, they almost literally become synonymous. But actually, the word for evangelical has a different meaning to it. It simply means somebody that's just committed to scripture and is faithful to living out the good news of the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be truly evangelical. So this morning, we're going to look at what does it mean to be the people of God? What does it mean to live in exile? What does it mean to belong? And how do we, as a church, family, both Eastside and Central, how do we dig into it and walk out of this thing practically and be faithful as exiles and live out the kingdom of God here in this world? So we, as a church, started wrestling with this ideal of membership uh, there's been a few starts and stops to membership. I've learned over the last 18 years, there's kind of been this wrestle about, you know, I mean, some of you have maybe good experiences and positive experience about being a member of a church, and some of you may have a negative experience of what it means to be a member of the church. And we hope as we kind of think through, what does it mean to be a part, to be connected, to belong, to be family, right? To hold each other down. What does that mean? So last spring, we looked at our preaching calendar and we thought it would be good for this fall to start teaching on the confessions and practices that join us together in a covenant community that is willing to do life together and follow Jesus faithfully. And so here is this series that we're going to unpack. All right. So to distill the answer down to what that means, well, we're going to look at ways of, of life, a way of life that we believe changes us and is faithful to scripture, uh, a way of life that blesses the world, and a way of life that resists the idols of our own culture. So this morning, we're going to go into Daniel chapter 1, and we're going to unpack that. Are you with me this morning? Okay. We're going to unpack it. So let's look at Daniel. Let's look at them. They were exiles. It was 606. Uh, Babylon had just conquered them and taken some of their wisest, smartest, most intelligent youth and brought them back to Babylon. And here, the people of God find themselves enslaved under occupation, brought to a foreign culture, and now 
having to have to live into it. And how do they do it? Well, look with me here in verses 1 through 3. Or let's just look at verse 1 and 2. It says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. And these he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put them in, put them in the treasure house of his God. So here's Daniel's cultural moment. They're in exile. They're conquered in 606 B.C. by the Babylonian Empire and Nebuchadnezzar the king and they're brought to Babylon and now they're in a foreign country and the question is well not so much the question is is how do they look at this how do they look at their subjugation how do they look at their slavery how do they look at this struggle how do they look at their oppression is it a time of despair or is it a time of discovery? Is it an opportunity to be a witness in the world? Or is it a time to be depressed? Because Israel's way of life in Babylon has, has fundamentally run counter to their own life in Israel. The Babylonian war life uh, in terms of their ethic is different, in terms of their values are different, in terms of their religious orientations are different. So what was their hope? What was the hope for Israel in, in exile? Well, we're going to unpack that here this morning. The one thing we do know, even in their oppression, is in verse 2, it says, And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Which means that whatever happened in terms of the oppression and being enslaved, God was sovereign in it. In other words, there is nothing that sits outside of God's control. There's nothing in the universe that spins outside of God's hand that God is unaware of. And here we have God being sovereign, even over their oppression, even over their cultural moment, even over their struggle. God is at the center of it. Now, don't get it twisted. Even though Judah was in sin, and even though Babylon had power, God didn't create evil, and nor did he create the power within Babylon. But what he does do is, is that God even uses the evil and power to further his purposes. God uses evil in our own life, the struggles, the struggles, the, 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 the poor choices that we make. Some of us find ourselves in a hole because of things that have been done to us or things that were done because of decisions that we made that were sinful decisions and yet God takes every part of our life and he puts it back together redemptively and this is exactly what we're going to see here as the people of God and as Israel living in exile. There's this story when I was in Kenya me and my wife went to Kenya in the 90s, and we did 30 days there. And uh, Africa is absolutely beautiful, and the resources there are absolutely amazing, and, and the cultural experience was inc incredible. 
And uh, we spent some time in Nairobi, and then we left Nairobi. We went to Maasai land, and uh, had a great time in Maasai land. And we were part of this missions medical organization that did work all over the country. And then we were on our way back to Nairobi, and I picked up, I don't know what the paper was. I think it was something like the Nairobi Tribune. And I was on a bus on my way back to Nairobi because we had to catch a plane the next day. And as I was reading the Nairobi Tribune, it was an African-American writer from Howard University who spent two years in Africa writing on the conditions of, of Kenya. And his last piece, this was his last piece right before he was getting back, getting ready to go back to the United States. His last piece was this. It was titled, Thank God for Slavery. And I perked up like, what? Who would even be so bold to even write a title and then make a case that slavery was good? And then once I started digging into his article, he began to write about the beauties of Africa. But then he began to talk about the African-American story as a different and unique story and its own history, in spite of its own oppression, right here in America has created incredible stuff right in the heart of its own culture. And he began to talk about what does it mean to not be fully African on the one hand and not be American on the other, but to live in the hyphen. To truly live bifurcated. To live in this hyphenated life. To be in exile, to not be fully this and not be fully this. And he talks about the beauty of the African-American experience. And it, I, to be honest, I was absolutely proud as I read the article, and I don't have time to go into it. Now, don't get it twisted. In no way am I trying to equivocate Christianity and the African-American experience as the same. But I, I'm telling you right now, even as Christians, we do live in a certain hyphenated reality. We're not fully this and we're not fully that. We can't be siloed in this and siloed in that. That's why Jesus lived in completely different categories. You've heard me say this a million times. Jesus was not conservative, nor was he liberal. He was more moral than any moralist. And yet, he was liberal more than any liberal at the same time. So what does it mean for us? Well, the first thing we understand in our cultural mo moment is that God is sovereign. And this is not a time of despair, but this is a time of discovery. This is a creative way for us to live out our own faith because we find ourselves in a cultural moment where America no longer validates the church beliefs and practices as it once did. There's been a shift. There's been a shift, and that shift has come at breakneck speed. God's people begin now in our country find itself living in a marginal position where we've become increasingly secular. Even the political climate has changed. And yet God calls us to live different in it. 
So, first three through five. Look with me here real quick. It says, Then the king ordered Ashaphaz, king, a chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Verse 4, young men without physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and the literature of Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table, and they were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Here's Daniel and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. In Babylon and now they have to go through a complete transformation of identity they're no longer in Jerusalem there's no institution or community that represents who they are so how do they live out their faith in exile I don't know if you've had an opportunity to read uh, Pastor Rick's book called Faith for This Moment, but I, I got a chance this week to read it. And there's three things that he puts in there about what does it mean to be a faithful witness living in exile in Babylon. And there's three ways that the church has, has, uh, has taken on the culture. And the first way is, is that we either baptize it Meaning, we're no longer distinct in the culture, we just fit in and blend. Like whatever society does, we do. We stamp everything as good. The music, the culture, the philosophy, the ideal, and we become like the world around us. We get discipled by Portland. And everything becomes right, nothing becomes wrong, and we take no stand in anything. We just baptize ourselves, fully immerse ourselves into the culture. So there are some churches, some mainline churches that have literally bought hook, line, and sinker where we become like the world. There's nothing distinct, there's nothing unique about who we are. We're baptized into it. And then you got the other branch of Christendom who don't baptize it, they burn it down. They want to take back the country. One of the dangers I think in the 80s when I became a Christian is this whole ideal of being this alternative culture. So there's hip hop, okay, we're going to do Christian hip hop, right? There's rock and roll, we're going to do Christian rock and roll. I remember when I was at Oregon State University and I went to one of them real hard fire and brimstone Pentecostal churches where you didn't even dance. Like that little this right here stuff that you couldn't even do that. I mean, they might let you bunny hop. That's about all you did in church. But I was at Oregon State University. I'll never forget there was a Christ, the Christians decided that they were going to have their own dance. And I thought it was sounded so goofy for Christians to have an alternative dance to the dances and parties, often of the frats and sororities that would have them on frat row. So the Christian community on the college campus decided to have a dance. And I'm like, there's no way I'm going to a Christian dance and dancing to Christian music with somebody else. Just no way. 
But I decided that I would at least go and peek through the window to see what this looked like. <laughs> so, so that night they had the dance, and I'll never forget, I went up to the window and I looked through, and this, is, this might predate a lot of you, but for some of you old heads that remember Amy Grant, how many of you put your hand up if you remember Amy Grant, right? All right. They was playing El Shaddai and slow dancing to it. And if you can see El Shaddai, El Shaddai, I was like, oh my goodness, no. They slow dancing to El Shaddai. I said, no, this, this, burn it. And that's it. We either live between these sort of cultural moments. Either we're baptizing it and becoming everything like the world, and there's nothing to stink about us at all. We swallow the culture full on. Or we burn it. Everything about the culture. And think our holiness is tied to us resisting 90% of the city to be holy. Or there's a different strategy, and this is exactly what we find here in the life of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 4 through 9. I don't have the slide, but I'll read it here. This is what God tells them in captivity. It says this in verse 4. It says, this is what the Lord the Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Verse 5, build houses, settle down, plant gardens, and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters into marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. And so God gives Daniel and the people of God who live in exile in Babylon a strategy. And the strategy is seek the peace of the city. Seek the peace of the city. Settle down, put roots, buy a house, live life. Serve your neighbor, love your, practice hospitality, transform the city, shalom it. Now, what does that mean to seek the peace of the city? Because I live in the city and I'm either tempted to be baptized and swallow it whole and be like everyone else around me to fit in or I want to burn it down because I'm part of this hyper Pentecostal charismatic or Baptist whatever type of church that says everything around it is sinful. And yet God comes to these people in exile and gives them a completely different strategy of, 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 of engagement. He says, blessed on the one hand, seek the peace of the city, and yet on the other hand, resist it. Bless the city, and yet resist the city. How do you do that? How do you bless and resist? Well, I'll tell you how I bless and resist the city. 
I run a nonprofit called HALA, which is a culturally responsive mentoring organization for black and brown kids. So I get called either from son or from schools to do education on working with black kids. And I support the school district because we pay almost on our own dollar money to send our black and brown college age students from all the colleges here in the city that we have contracts with into those communities to connect with those kids in ways that empower them because oftentimes many of these black and brown kids don't have any adult that look like them in the whole building. So I'm going to bless, we're going to bless the district because we're going to provide representation of black and brown college age students that come from the same experience of the kids that they serve. And yet, when I do that kind of education with those educators and teachers, I talk about white supremacy and the curriculums that do a disservice to these kids that don't see any of their history, any of their stories represented in the curriculum that is taught. So when I go into the city on our own dime and we go into the districts, we send people, we bless the district. And yet at the same time, when it's time for me to get up and educate, I talk to them about number one, omniscience, which means y'all think y'all know everything and you think these kids absolutely know nothing and you're not taking any of the cultural tropes from their own experience to add value to your own curriculum, that's a problem. We talk about omnipotence, which means you have the power, they have absolutely no power, and we need to subvert that power and level it out so that the education is flat. We talk about um, we talk about uh, omnipresence, like white supremacy and the presence of whiteness and how it impacts education and these kids' ability to learn and to understand what you bring into a room when you walk into it amongst one kid who wrestles with every class that he's in to where he's the only in so many spaces. And many of you minorities know exactly what I'm talking about living here in this city. And that's not to indict, but on the one hand, I'm willing to bless, and yet on the other hand, I'm willing to resist. It's both. I love the fact that Imago Day gave money, resources, re-beautified uh, spaces, gave low rent to SARC, which is a city program, called Sexually, what is it, Sexually Assault Resource Center for girls that have been sex trafficked all over the city. And they partnered with the government to do that. And yet we always challenge the government to think about mass incarceration, even in our own state. <laughs> it's partnering with our city and yet being prophetic to our city at the same time. Don't get me twisted. I'm not always about just being prophetic to the city and pointing out what's wrong with the city. I want to also pastor the city, love the city, bless the city. And so this is exactly what Daniel 
and these other Hebrew teenagers do in Babylon. Marry, buy homes, put down roots, move into a community and engage it, practice hospitality, live life. Don't baptize, don't baptize yourself into it, but don't burn it down. Bless it. And yet resist it. Be a pastor to the city. And be prophetic at the city. And that ain't easy. Because when you're about pastoring the city, prophetic folks who are exclusively prophetic think you're always selling out because you ain't sticking it to the man. And when you get prophetic, all these folks say, come on, they try and make you do an accommodationist or a gradualist. And you go, no, you got to put your foot down and challenge it. Man, that is where the people of God get to say, show up. Are you following me this morning? I'm not going to spend a ton of time. And this is what God does with Daniel. So, as I close this morning, we believe the way to bless and resist as God's people is the covenant together around a common confession of faith and to our practice, live out the gospel in five different rhythms. And we'll unpack these over the next eight weeks. You've heard us talk about this. One is hear and obey, being led by the spirit. We believe in the gifts of the spirit. We believe God speaks to his people. We believe God speaks through his word. And we believe God randomly just speaks. And we want to hear God's voice. And we want to create space, even on a Sunday morning and in our home communities, spaces to hear God's voice collectively and corporately. We want to celebrate. We want to put contemplation on the one hand and celebration on the other together. We want to celebrate the victories. We want to celebrate God's goodness in our life, even when we struggle. We want to practice three, generosity. We want to be a generous people. We want to give. We want to bless our city. We want to use our money and our resources subversively. We want to serve even if we don't have any money. We want to be generous with our time and our talent and give and expect nothing in return. I laugh because I'm a basketball coach at Benson Tech High School. I get, <laughs> I get $6,900 for winter and that's supposed to last me the whole year. I laugh, I said, because I ain't seen that yet. All the gas and time and money and fixing my car and buying food and making sure kids is cared for. I ain't even seen that money yet. I'm waiting to get paid that $6,900. 
You guys know exactly in your own line of work when you step into places where kids and lives and families are vulnerable, sometimes you don't even see your return monetarily. And to a certain degree, that's what it means just to be generous. We give in grace without expecting anything in return because we know they are being transformed and we are being transformed as well. <laughs> we just not trying to see the city get saved, but you getting saved in the process. <laughs> we practice radical hospitality. We open our doors. Family becomes bigger than our immediate family. Who is my mother and brother but they that do the will of my father? That's a great question. Who is my mother and brother and father but they that do the will of God? Well, who are they that are doing the will of God? A lot of people. The rhythm of vocation, realizing that all of our work, all of our employment, everything that we put our hands to is not duplicious. It's not, this is the, when I come to church and when I go to home communion and I read my Bible, those are the things I do for the Lord. But when I'm working nine to five, that's what I do for myself. No, the kingdom of God pulls those two things together. So, as we talk about belonging and being the people of God and living in exile, there's three things that we're calling our church, Imago Dei communities. That means east side and central. Is number one, getting connected in a small group. Particularly during this, during this series, getting connected in a small group to process this stuff. To think about what does it mean to live in the culture? What does it mean not to burn it down? What does it mean not to be baptized? What does it mean to bless and resist? To not live in an echo chamber, but have people pushing against you. So get into a home community. Get into the lives of this family. Get yourself ensconced into the people of God. Two, we're going to roll out a devotion with a video. We kind of we, we, we shot some videos. Brother Bill Clem wrote a curriculum around our rhythms, around our mission, and around the creeds. And we're asking our community to jump in together and go through it. And then the last thing is, as I know at, at church, we're lucky if anyone comes to church twice a month, or four times a month. Most people's rhythms is twice a month, at best, and some once every one Sunday a month. We're saying during the series, be a part of this whole thing. Don't miss a Sunday. Jump in. This is the call to the church as we wrestle through what it means to belong and to be the people of God.
You hear me? All right. We're going to pray. Let's pray. Jesus, we, we know that you came and died for community. You didn't die for me. You died for us. <laughs> you died for y'all. You died for we. You died for your church. You died for the people of God. You died to redeem a living, breathing organism called the people of God. You died for the world as a collective. And God, you call us as a collective to live in exile, to bless and yet resist, to not burn down but not be baptized, to live like Daniel, to put our roots down, to marry, to buy homes, to build businesses, to flourish and seek the peace of the city. Help us over the next eight weeks understand what that's going to look like in our own daily life. So as we come to the communion table and eat the bread and drink from the cup, we thank you that 2,000 years ago, that family was initiated. The veil was rent. The dividing wall between Jew and Gentile, between rich and poor, young and old. The divide between ethnic groups and cultures and races of people. The di divide between gender. The divide between country and non-country. Between citizens and foreigners. God, you called us to be exiles. You call us to be the citizens of a different kingdom. You call us to have our ultimate allegiance to the kingdom of God. Today, would you break every idol, every lie of the enemy that would put us into these siloed opinions politically and, and religiously and monetarily and country. God, that you would break that in us this morning. May we walk in step with you, Jesus. May the gospel transform us today. May we truly understand what it means to be the people of God today. And as we come to the communion table, God, let us do work in our own heart to live upside down. In Jesus' name, amen. We pray that God will use this message to strengthen your faith and draw you into a deeper relationship with himself. If you're interested in hearing other sermons or want more information about the church, please visit our website at idceastside.com. Thanks for listening.